From the basement at the Alamo, it's the Digigods. And now, here's two guys that make Large Marge look normal. It's Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. All right, Corey, thank you very much. Who sent that in? That was sent in by Jason Levy. Uh, <laughs> Funny. Uh, uh, <laughs> always enjoy when Corey does a when he does his little impromptu peewee. It's fun. Good times. Lots of happiness. Yeah, and he did it right in front of us. He did. He didn't record this three no. months ago. He did it right in front of us right now. Just now. Wow. Uh, so yeah, Hollywood is still here. Nothing's burned down. No, or... I have not made you your key lime pie yet. I know. Are you key lime pie ice cream? Key lime ice cream. I'm going to do it. Have I... I explained to you why I want that so badly? No, uh, you have not. Okay, so Chow Bella. Are you familiar with the brand Chow Bella? Is that the one that comes in a, um... They make a... pints, like, like Haagen-Dazs or anybody else that make pints. No, but the, uh, uh, the, it's a, it's a see-through plastic tub, right? No. Chow Bella, they, they, they're just very colorful, but they, Chow Bella, they make primarily sorbets. But they, they had, uh, some years ago, a key lime pie ice cream that was absolutely to die for. It was the most wonderful thing ever. And uh, I bought, like, I don't know, 10 pints of it on sale at one point. And uh, a few weeks ago, during one a particularly excruciatingly hot day, I took that last pint out of the refrigerator, and I plowed into it over the course of about two nights. And uh, it's gone now. And I'm having a craving, and I want key lime ice cream. And you're my only, you're, you're my only hope, Obi-Wan. All right. I, I'm looking up Chow Bellas. Maybe yeah. the... Um... Oh, there's a recipe? Uh, maybe. I should have told you that last week. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, anyway. We should, we should get uh, really cracking into some stuff this week. we got a, a lot of stuff to go through. Uh, classic movies, new movies, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, but you know what? First, Mark, uh, we're going to talk about some classic movies. And uh, I should get into this week's Criterions and uh, Cohen releases because they are wicked awesome. I just want to say they are wicked awesome. Uh, we also got some Fritz Long and a whole bunch of other stuff. But the first off, the Criterions. We've got four Criterions that have come out uh, between last week and this week. And they are all absolute must-owns, uh, unless you want to wait and hope that they wind up on Filmstruck later this year. But, man, this stuff just kills. All of them kill. All of these great Blu-rays. From 1966, Orson Welles chimes at midnight. Absolutely sensational. Uh, if you are obviously, if you are a Wells fan, this goes without saying. It's just, it, it, it's amazing. And uh, you know, Wells was always, uh, as you know from his uh, Macbeth and his Othello, Wells was a big Shakespeare buff, and kind of a Shakespearean figure in real life as well. Anyway, the uh, here he kind of uh, he he takes his Shakespeare's obsession into some really fascinating directions. And uh, Falstaff is the, is the avenue, is the conduit through which he does that. Uh, there's a lot of stuff here that kind of winds through various different Shakespearean plays, but it is really a, a, just an, ex- it's an exceptionally cool film and a beautiful restoration. Lots of great extras on here, including an interview with Keith Baxter, uh, and a new Ted interview. Baxter from yeah, Mary Tyler exactly. Moore, absolutely, and a new interview with Orson Welles' daughter Beatrice Wells, who was nine years old when she was in the film. Anyway, Chimes at Midnight, absolutely fantastic. Yes, right here. Wait, listen to me. What? Key lime with graham cracker gelato, the Chow Bella cookbook of gelato and <gasps> sorbetto. Right here. Oh, I can make it tomorrow if I if I so choose, but I don't. No, I'll, oh. I'll, it's not a problem. 
Oh. Uh, but it, it only has three tablespoons of lime juice. That seems weird to me. It doesn't seem like a lot. Well, three make tablespoons it. I'll of tell you if it's enough. Two teaspoons of grated lime zest. I'll tell you if it's enough. No, this is easy. This All is right. like a, this is not a big deal. And then, two years after Chimes at Midnight, Orson Welles made his first color film at the very late year of 1968. And uh, it, was, it wound up actually being the last film, the last actual film that he would complete, which was The Immortal Story, um, which is an adaptation of an Isaac Dennison uh, tale, who was, of course, writing at the time under the name uh, Karen Blixen and would some years later become uh, portrayed by... Uh, none other than Meryl Streep in Out of Africa, which would win Best Picture, win Best Picture which is something that always eluded Wells. Nonetheless, uh, really absolutely fantastic movie. Just a beautiful, beautiful film. Very, very underrated. Uh, takes place in Macau, and it's, uh, it's quite, a, quite a great melodrama, actually. Uh, Jeanne Moreau stars in it. Uh, just beautiful performance. Really, really just a great movie, and, and everything that's great about Wells winds up in this movie. Also has an uh, alternate French-language version of the film, Among the Extras. The audio commentary from 2009 featuring Adrian Martin is on here, as well as a 1968 documentary uh, about Orson Welles called Portrait Orson Welles. Uh, which was co-directed, by the way, by Frederick Rossif, who made many, many wonderful nature documentaries that Vangelis scored. By the way, have I mentioned there's a new Vangelis album coming out? Is he still alive, that guy? Vangelis? Yeah, baby. It's called Rosetta, in tribute to the European Space Agency mission, the Rosetta mission, Aww. which I know nothing about, but all I know is it's a new Vangelis album. I'm very, very excited. So, uh, anyway. And then the last two criterions... Uh, one is, I'm going to leave the best for last. The next one is A Taste of Honey by Tony Richardson. Yeah, kitchen sink, baby. Right? Tony Richardson, man. Once married to uh, Vanessa Redgrave, all those Richardson kids, those are his too. Um, 1961, this uh, was two years before he would go on to direct Tom Jones and win an Oscar for it and and elevate uh, that weird... English kitchen sink realism, uh, angry young men thing into the stratosphere. I like Long Distance Runner better than this movie. Oh, I do too. I, I and and I like The Sporting Life better than all of them. Oh yeah, right? that's the best. <gasps> when is that coming out? On uh, actually, I already have. Do I, is that on? It's Blu-ray? not on Blu-ray right now. I, I have the DVD. Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, Sporting Life. You know who else loves that film? Russell Crowe. <laughs> he does. <laughs> How do you know that? Because when the the. <laughs> the infamous junket for Gladiator, which is one of the most amazing roundtable interviews I've ever done in my entire career as a journalist. Russell Crowe came in. They packed two rooms worth. They brought the other table in because he had to go to the SAG lines. You know, there was, uh, I forget whatever it was. He was he, the, the SAG awards were around the same time. And he had to go to the, the, the red carpet, right? So they had to they got to, they had to finish this up early. Of course, Russell Crowe didn't want to do the press line at the SAG Awards, so he actually spent longer with the combined room than he would have with the two rooms individually, just to piss off the publicists, which was hysterical because they were in, they were like in conniption fits as the clock was winding down, and he didn't care because he was Russell Crowe, and uh, it was a magnificent, just an incredible. Just to witness that that sadism with which he wielded his personality it was so much fun. But it, when he was talking about working with Richard Harris, he talked about them bonding over their mutual love for, love for rugby. And as he's and, and they asked him like, "Wow, really? You you like Richard Harris?" And he goes, "Come on, the sporting life." And he just you could tell that the sporting life was just part of his 
his essence, part of his karma, his chakra, whatever. Well, it was and you can thing. see that. If, if you've seen that movie, you, know, you can see how he would be. Oh, absolutely. You see Russell Crowe all over that character. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I love that movie. So anyway, Taste of Honey, good movie. Uh, one of the great British new wave, kitchen sink, realism, angry young men movies, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that movement, that era, really fantastic. Rita Tushingham, just fabulous. Uh, you know, just so young and it just, just gritty, gritty Manchester and that just, oh, it's so good. Everything about this is just fantastic. All the extras are great. Interview with Tony Richardson from the uh, 1962 Cannes Film Festival, uh, audio interview uh, in that case. Uh, there's an excerpt from a, 1970, a 1960 television interview uh, with playwright Shala Delan- Delaney and a 1998 uh, interview with uh, Walter Lasley, the uh, cinematographer. A lot of other great stuff on here. Really, really uh, just a great criterion. And here's the one that just kills it this week. This is This is Beauty Through and Through from 1964. One of the great films of the Japanese New Wave, if not the great film of the Japanese New Wave, uh, Hiroshi Teshigahara's Woman in the Dunes. Oh, my gosh, what an amazing allegory. If you have not seen this movie, you have missed out on life. This is one of the great films of all time, of all time. It is certainly one of the greatest Japanese films of all time. It is amazing, beautifully restored, two and a half hours of absolute sheer bliss. You know how last week we were talking, talking about magical realism? <laughs> this film's nothing but magical realism, but I love it because it's just, it's just wild. And uh, the whole idea here is it, you, you have a guy who... Okay, I'm not gonna, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to give it away. But you basically have a guy who winds up trapped in, in this sand dune with this woman... And why they're trapped and, and, and why she's trapped and all of that is, is, a, is just a giant allegory for so many things in modern life, in, in Japanese society at the time. It's extraordinary. Anyway, uh, just magnificent. This thing wound up getting an Oscar nomination for Deshigahara. Very deservedly. He probably should have won, but it was 1964. So clearly it was, that was going to go to uh, My Fair Lady. But in any case, great stuff. Short films by Teshigahara. Uh, on here, four of them from uh, the early part of his career. Documentary from 2007 about uh, the uh, collaboration between Teshigahara and the novelist Kobo Abe. Uh, and on and on and on. A lot of great stuff. Really just fantastic. Gorgeous transfer. I can't even tell you how gorgeous this is. This film is just an erotic experience in every conceivable way. I have an erotic experience in every conceivable way. Yeah, that joke doesn't work uh, today. Not not no. not in the way you, no, not in the way you're you're intending. How dare you? And then, uh, kind of dovetailing with all of this stuff is the, uh, the we talked about Orson Welles. The uh, Cohen Film Collection has also released a fantastic Chuck Workman film on Blu-ray, which is Magician: The Astonishing Life and Work of Orson Welles. If you don't know, Chuck Workman's the guy that does all those amazing montages that just cut together like 97 clips from 150 movies, and they all look... It's just... You don't realize how much work and time goes into that. Uh, what a great documentary. What a wonderful film to go with all the others uh, from Criterion this week. You've got to see this hour and a half, that is a tribute to Wells. That is an absolute delight. It is wonderful. doesn't get any better than that. This is uh, probably the best film, best tribute to Wells you could possibly have hope for, and it's gorgeous on Blu-ray. Magician, the astonishing life and work of Orson Welles. And then also from Cohen, the Oscar-nominated Mustang. Mark, you loved this too, didn't you? Which Mustang, one? the French film? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah, totally. Uh, it was kind of the theme in France and at the Oscars this last year, but France had a whole number of films about immigrants and non-French uh, minorities. 
and Mustang was one of the very, very best of them. Uh, Turkish girls, four sisters, uh, and uh, kind of a, an amazing coming-of-age film. Really, really good. Uh, very deservedly Oscar-nominated and uh, absolutely worth seeing. That's on Blu-ray. A uh, fantastic film by Denise Gamze Ergeven. And then lastly, I could not be more excited than to recommend uh, two new films by Philip DeBroca and a double feature from the Cohen Film Collection. Uh, the great DeBroca, uh, who just is one of, the, my, one of my favorite directors of all time, Five Day Lover with Gene Seberg and uh, Jean-Pierre Cassel, the father of uh, Vincent Cassel and Francois Perrier. Micheline Pressel. Uh, that is just an absolute delight. That is a wonderful 1961 French classic. But here's the reason you really want this. You want this for On Guard, which is one of DeBroca's last films from 1997, which is amazing. Daniel Auteuil, Fabrice Lucchini, uh, Marie Gillian, Vincent Perez, a tremendous swashbuckling period piece based on a novel uh, but just one of the most amazing... I mean, this is up there in Cyrano de Bergerac territory. Absolutely wonderful film. I reviewed this for box office at the time. Unbelievable. I remember at the uh, Cannes Film Festival in uh, 1997, this thing was being sold. I was like, that looks really cool. Then it came out. I saw it at the uh, AFM. Could not believe how awesome it was. Love everything about that film. On Guard. Great double feature. On Guard, The Five-Day Lover from Philippe de Broca. Fabulous. Fabulous. You know a movie I'm reading about uh, what are you while, reading while about? you drone on about nothing? Uh, go on. Uh, Wong Kar Wai's 2046. Is that ever going to be on Blu-ray? People I don't keep know. asking me about that. I don't know, but yeah. it was it was a bit of a because uh, people thought it was going to be his Blade Runner. Yeah, like 2046. Yeah. And he goes future. It really was not that. No, not really. No, not really. I remember seeing that movie at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, the uh, screening was so crowded. I had to watch. I had to watch the whole film at the Cannes Film Festival standing up. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, the Commitments 25th anniversary. This is Alan Parker's landmark. Oh, so good. Comedy musical. And this this is during Alan Parker's "Can Do No Wrong" years. It really was, wasn't it? He, he like every film for from like Angel 19, Hard and Midnight Express, but from and, Midnight Express on, it was sort of like beginning with Midnight. Even Bugsy Malone is pretty great, but oh, Midnight from Midnight Express like up through Angela's Ashes, like every single movie is amazing. It's about a fifteen sixteen year just can do no wrong period. Birdie on yes. and on. And on. He had a Rob Reiner esque. Remember how Rob Reiner came out of the gate with like you know, eight great films? Oh, yeah. And then came North, and that was it? Yeah. <laughs> Remember North? And that oh, destroyed it. Uh. Anyway, so The Commitments is just, it's all this amazing soul music for, from these great Dublin musicians. And, uh, Andrew it's Strong. Just, it's just passionate, and it's, a, just, it's just a great film. It's all, so much fun. All live music, by the way. There's yeah, they no, played it live. They played it live. Mustang Sally, Chain of Fools, In the Midnight Hour. It's just a great, great film. Cole Meany, by the way, if you're a fan of Star That's Trek right. Next Generation. That's right. Uh, he's in this, and uh, I just I love this movie. I adore this movie. This movie was a bit of a mini phenomenon at the time. Mainly because the music was so fantastic. I mean, really, not since like the Blues Brothers did you see yeah. a film where like True. the music just you thought, "Wow, this is exactly That's how it. I want all of these songs to be to be ingested by society forever." Yep. In this movie. That's it. I love this film, The Commitments, 25th anniversary edition, a must buy. There is a new interview with Alan Parker who hasn't really done much. Alan Parker's kind of like uh, he's out of the loop. He's got a couple of things in development. Something is supposed to come out next year, I think. You're giving me this, by the way. No. Warner Archive Collection. Some great ones. Three three this week. Uh, Two on DVD or DVD-R and the other one on Blu-ray. Oh, what good stuff. Uh, Edward G. Robinson. Always a, a delight. Two really terrific ones. Unholy Partners and Blackmail. 
not, you know, the, the to top of the list when you think of films that uh, Edward G. Robinson made, but really, really good ones uh, nonetheless. Uh, Blackmail obviously just screams Edward G. Robinson. Uh, if you're going to make a movie called Blackmail, going to make a movie about blackmail. Yeah, she, yeah. yeah you, you, want Edward, yeah. you know who did the, the Edward G. Robinson Im impersonation in the Bugs Bunny cartoons? Whoever did that, I mean, I'm assuming it's probably Mel Blanc doing a, a, an Edward G. Robinson, but gosh, the, the, the characterization is just Maybe always it was Edward so, G. Robinson. Maybe he had a sense of humor about himself. Oh, man, so but, funny. Uh, anyway, H.C. Uh, Potter uh, does this, which is a pretty kind of uh, standard Hitchcockian-esque film um, about a guy who is blackmailed. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, there, there are a few uh, twists in the whole kind of wrong man scenario that, you know, we're accustomed to mostly from Hitchcock. Uh, that uh, don't quite work, but still, the you know it, it's just it's a it's a great cast and it's a great performance by Edward G. Robinson, uh, and uh, some great supporting stuff in here. Gene Lockhart, uh, always just wonderful, the the patriarch of the great Lockhart family, uh, really really good stuff. So uh, a lot of fun if you want if you if you love your Edward G. Ro Edward G. Robinson, uh, and then Unholy Partners, a uh, bit of the same thing. It's the uh, this is more of a melodrama than it is a uh, crime or a noir thing um but it's uh, it's got kind of noir edges to it it's almost like uh, robinson brings the noir into whatever he does uh so uh you know this has a little uh, kind of a post-world war one angle to it and uh that's worth checking out as well unholy partners but here's the here's the big mama that you really got to love this week on blu-ray from the warner archive collection cat on a hot tin roof with elizabeth taylor paul newman burl ives uh just a a legendary performance by uh by the amazing Elizabeth Taylor, who really could almost do no wrong during this particular period. This was, uh, you know, 1950s and 60s was, she owned Hollywood. She was the leading lady. She could do whatever she wanted to. And uh, you stick her in Tennessee Williams and boom, you've got gold. It just, uh, it is a terrific film. This was the first of many Oscar nominations that Paul Newman received, which he would not receive an Oscar for until finally they gave it to him for The Color of Money, which was weird. Uh, probably the least deserving performance of his entire career. Uh, but, you know, uh, just absolutely a terrific adaptation of Tennessee Williams. Wonderfully done by Richard Brooks, who co-wrote the uh, screenplay and directed the film. And uh, other great performances in here include Judith Anderson and uh, obviously Burl Ives, Jack Carson. Uh, it's a, just a fantastic film. Really, really beautiful. And uh, the uh, worth noting, Burl Ives performed the same part on Broadway. So for fans of Broadway who may have seen the, uh, the Broadway stage production at the time, yep, Burl Ives took it on, owned it on stage and on screen. Burl Ives. Silver and gold. <laughs> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Come no, on, that's give it cool. up. Rudolph, right. that's cool. Same Burl Ives. At least he did that. Yep, there you go. Anyway, uh, Psycho 4 at the beginning, by the time Psycho 4 came out, uh, really we had just, the, the, the legacy of Psycho was completely mm -hmm. destroyed. Yeah, because obviously uh, Tony Perkins had nothing else to do with his career but uh, play Norman Bates over and over and over again. This one from 1990 was actually made for uh, TV. It was originally on Showtime in 1990. And um, it's kind of a it's a, it's a sequel, but yet it's also a bit of a prequel. So um, it was written by Joseph Stefano, who wrote the screenplay for the original film. However, at this point, there's really uh, you realize that Norman Bates is just not that interesting a character that mm -hmm. he's, he's got to last for four movies. Yep. Uh, he is all, all the guy really did was just stab a woman in a shower. That's really most of what he did. <laughs> Otherwise it's like, whatever. 
Um, the, anyway, just it, it, this thing is not very good. The cinematography is not great. It's uh, the script by Stefano is kind of disappointing. Uh, you know, Perkins looks older, and the character is just not that interesting. It sh- looks shot for TV. Um, I just think it's just a really just a misbegotten film. And thank goodness at this point it was just like done. Uh, but Scream Factory, we love Scream Factory. Not um, not taking anything away from the great folks at Scream Factory. We do love their stuff, even if this movie was not that great. Yeah. Um, Mick Garris, who directed the film, gives us an audio commentary. He's very honest about the making of the film and what it took to get it uh, to get it released. And um, yeah, there's some behind the scenes footage, which is always kind of fun. But uh, ultimately, the film is just not that great. Uh, we got through f- three from the uh, Arrow collection. All of them, uh, as per usual, they are uh, Blu-ray and DVD combo sets. The first is Microwave Massacre, which is just a horrendous uh, exploitation uh, film that has some weird kind of a following for some reason. Rain- Wayne Berwick uh, made the film. It's just one of those horrible gore... Like, it, it's, it sort of like wants to be a Cronenberg movie, but doesn't even come close. Uh, anyway... It's got a following, so somebody's going to love this thing. 2K restoration from the original negative. Uh, audio commentary with uh, the writer-producer Craig Muckler, and uh, it's, you know, none of this is terribly interesting, but, uh, you know, including the featurette, but if you love the film, that doesn't matter. Uh, also, Duccio Tassari's The Bloodstained Butterfly uh, from the Arrow Collection on uh, Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, this is a... a, a mm, it's kind of a, it's a sort of a weird hybrid. It, it, it technically belongs to the uh, giallo genre. Uh, it's got a lot, obviously, the, the whole Dario Argento thing influences, but at the same time, it's kind of like a courtroom drama at the same time. So it, 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 it does, it's a bit of a weird genre splicing thing. I'm not sure that it works, but again, this also has a cult following, so, uh, you know, more power to them. The one that is worth, uh, checking out this week uh, is, of course, Mario Bava. The uh, film is Blood and Black Lace. Blood and Black Lace, Black Lace has been on uh, DVD before and has always looked horrible. This has a brand new restoration from the negative, 2K, and uh, it looks gorgeous. It really is. This is as good as this film has ever looked. I'm not a huge fan of the film, to be honest. Again, I'm not a big fan of Giallo. But uh, if you have to make a Giallo film, this is the one to make. It's a smart script. It's well-directed, uh, well put together. Blood and Black Lace, definitely a classic in the genre. And uh, you get it, you know, English and uh, Italian, with, uh, Italian with subtitles, obviously English dubbed version. And gobs and gobs of extras here. Interviews and featurettes and panel discussions and on and on and on. So much stuff. Stuff from film festivals. It's, it's endless. So uh, they really, really just kick this up a notch. This is uh, purely for fans. Blood and Black Lace. If you love yourself some bloody, lacy Mario Bava, this DVD Blu-ray uh, combo set will just kick it up for you. It's wonderful. Wait, uh, less wonderful but still surprisingly okay is uh, Session 9, the sort of film that I would really not like. But mm. um, I kind of liked it. It wasn't that bad. It's um, directed by Brad Anderson, and um, it stars David Caruso, who has nothing better to do than to star in movies yeah. like Session 9. And uh, there's, a ha- there's a asbestos crew cleaning up a uh, mental hospital that's been abandoned. And, of course, uh, you know, strange things start to happen in an abandoned mental hospital. And um, Brad Anderson is a, is a better director than this sort of material would normally warrant. I still don't think he's done anything as good as his first film. Uh, not Trans-Siberian, the other one. No, the first film, which was the, with, with, uh, with, with oh, the... Oh, jeez. 
It, 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 it's a <laughs> next stop Wonderland. That's right. I love that film. It's true, that but again, nice but normally this thing would be Philip one of those. Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour right. Hoffman. I know. It was fantastic in that movie. Um, anyway, this is good. You know what? He's he he's 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 a uh, He's an adult directing a film that would normally be directed by one of those like cheap kids. Mm-hmm. True. And so uh, it's really not that bad. Session 9, I was kind of surprised. Yeah. Uh, we got a couple from uh, Fritz Long here. Uh, Fritz Long's Destiny and uh, Fritz Long's The Spiders. Both of them from Kino, both on Blu-ray, and both uh, absolutely essential for any Fritz Long fan. Uh, Fritz Lang's Destiny from 1921 I will uh, discuss just a little bit first This is uh, kind of a classic of uh, mythical German expressionism Lang always pushed all of the envelope edges When he was making his films in Germany And uh, at the late date of 1921 He was really, really kind of in his prime um, his, his sound films are a bit of a compromise in my opinion It's his, his later silent stuff that is just absolutely sensational and uh, this is mystical and mythical and uh, gets into all kinds of really, really fascinating um, kind of, uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, it, it's, you know, the, I don't want to say it's like a zombie movie because it's not, but it does get into bringing people back from the dead. Kind of uh, mystic, mystic, Eastern mysticism maybe is a better way of, uh, of putting it. He, he's able to somehow infuse that into uh, German expressionism in a really, really intriguing way. So Destiny is the film. And then uh, the other one is The Spiders, which is uh, one of his more popular films. Uh, this is th- about three hours long, and it's kind of a serial. It's meant to be a more in the Indiana Jones vein doing a little bit what his uh, contemporary Louis Fayad did when he was introduced the whole idea of serialized uh, movie drama. And so uh, Long dipped his fingers and his toes in that, uh, in that genre and uh, proved that he could pretty much do anything. So it's definitely kind of an Indiana Jones thing with a little bit of, uh, with a little bit of uh, espionage thrown in for good measure. I actually saw The, uh, the Spiders and Spies both projected at the Academy with live orchestra accompaniment many years ago, and what an experience that was. i got to be honest. Those films, you, you forget how, how enormous a silent film actually is when you put that thing on a giant screen. Just the scale of the images blows your mind. Well, also, that, that Academy screening room is just beautiful. Oh, it's fantastic. Speaking of fantastic, Wade, we have Basket Case 2 and 3. Now, yeah. here's the thing with Basket, uh, basket Case. Now, uh, you don't need to have seen number one to pick it up with number two. You, well, you, 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 I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but if I haven't seen Basket Case, will I know what's happening in two and three? Well, these films were directed by a guy named Frank Henenlotter. Now, yeah. Frank Henenlotter had directed a, 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 a film called uh, Frankenhooker, which was a bit of a thing <laughs> at the time. Yeah. It's about this guy... Uh, whose fiance dies, and yeah. he decides to reanimate her mm-hmm. using her. It was like her head and the body of Manhattan prostitutes. Oh my god! So it was completely ridiculous, and it was a bit of a cult thing. And so then he wound up doing a basket case, and uh, basket case is about these Siamese twins, and one's normal, and the other is this this, this ridiculously low budget looking monster thing, and so. You know, it's very much in a vein of uh, of the straight to DVD horror film, straight to DVD, the straight to VHS horror films of the time. The effects are ridiculous. They know they're ridiculous. They own their ridiculousness. So there's a lot of humor there. So we have Basket Case Two and Basket Case Three: The Progeny, all directed by uh, Henenlotter. 
And this is what he does. I be, he he grew up. I believe he grew up actually watching these films as a kid. Yeah. And so now he wound up making them Whatever. as an adult. So you really have to um, know what you're in for, and just just go with it. Because if you go with it, you will enjoy the cheesy effects, and you'll enjoy the. Although this one was in 1990, I think, but uh, 1990, 1991. But it still has that that 80s direct to VHS aesthetic. Yeah, and it was a whole thing. Like it's alive. Yeah. They, they all had that. Yeah. Well, thing, what's yeah. with the, the the goblins or goblins. Uh, what? The, what's all the things with the elves, dwarves, whatever those all those things were called? Sweet. Uh, she, uh, yeah, no, the leprechaun. Leprechaun. Yeah, well, yeah, that's leprechaun, right. Chucky. Right? Yeah. All that nonsense. You love it. Yeah. What? What? What are the ones with the with the little things that are like knockoffs of gremlins? They like roll around. What were those things called? Huh? You know what I'm talking about? No. They're like round. Little, they're like round. gremlins, but they're like little Charles round. Broccoli, the round, round. No, round they're everybody. round and they roll around and they 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 chase after people. It's like a, like little like little gobliny things and they they but they 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 tuck their hands and feet in and they roll around. And they, really? You, you don't remember this? No, oh my maybe? gosh! Why am I not remembering the name of this? Carry on. Talk. talk tell people about the uh, the spectacular glories of uh, <laughs> Rudyard Kipling. You know, I watched Jungle Book on a plane. I was flying to a London. Yeah. <laughs> and I watched it. That's the way to watch it, by the way. That's the way to watch you it. Know, That's it, what they made it for. You know, exactly. You know, they said. All, all that CGI needs they, to be seen on a seven-inch screen on that's, a that was at the, at, the, at, the, at the production meeting, they said, uh, but John, you know, because John Favreau directed it, they said, but John, this, this epic vision that you have, will people be able to enjoy it on an eight-inch screen on a plane? And he said, oh, I'll make sure of it. <laughs> And yet, uh, a year later, here I am, saying that I watched this on a Delta flight. Uh, actually, it was Air France. Um, I had no, I had no hope for this going into it. It just seemed like a Disney cash in, but it's really not bad, you know. Um, the uh, it's beautifully shot. The effects are great. The voice acting is good. Uh, it takes a little while to get into the world that he's setting up. Um, but in the end, I just think it, it's to me it's not as good as Life of Pi, which I act, uh, which I completely adored and love that film. Although I don't think Wade likes it, but um, not at all. But uh, I thought this film was surprisingly okay. I really did, and the the Blu-ray looks fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Because frankly, most of it was CGI anyway. And uh, there's a bunch of bonus features how they made the film. Uh, there's an audio commentary with John Favreau, who is very um, very entertaining because that's what he does. John Favreau was very entertaining on screen and in audio commentaries. And uh, I was expecting nothing from this, and um, I thought it was great. It had, a, it had I thought it had, had a heart. Digital animation was great. Um, I was surprised. It's either Ghoulies or Critters. <laughs> one of the two. Might be Critters. I think it's Critters. I think Ghoulies are the ones that crawl out of the toilet, and Critters are the ones that roll. Gods at digigods.com. Remind us if you if you if you're fans of these movies in particular, and if you you can keep them straight because they all blend together in my recollection. Troll wasn't there another one called Troll? Yes. Yeah. See, Leprechaun, Troll, Ghoulies, Critters. It's just it was a horrible era. Anyway, so the Jungle Book. Um, you know, I I didn't really need the bare necessities. I felt like that song didn't really fit in this, but I guess because it's Disney and they have to sell a soundtrack, I guess it's got to be in there because uh, you know because Bill Bill Murray sings it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I, as uh, as the only live action thing in this entire movie, I still have the, to watch the, this. The, the kid is good. Um, it's funny. It it somehow 
it it's when you watch it, it feels like a cash in. It feels like it's just another one of Disney's. Let's make our animated films live action now, like Cinderella. Yet somehow, about twenty minutes in, you're thinking, you know what? This thing is kind of winning me over. And in the end, I I have to say I liked it. It's good. See the the nineteen ninety four version, which I can't believe was as far back as nineteen ninety four. That kind of freaks me out a little bit. Which was not a, a, a Disney animated thing, or even a, a reference to an animated thing. I mean, that was Jason Scott Lee playing Mowgli, who you know, is a grown man and he's muscular and he's, you know, and Stephen Sommers directed that, coming off of uh, the uh, the Mummy movies. I, I actually kind of enjoyed that. That's my recollection, but um, you know, very different take, obviously. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So, uh, other new movies. Uh, Me Before You. Did you see this, by the way? Uh, I did not. Okay. Me Before You. Amelia Clark, Sam uh, Claflin. Good looking people. They both could do CW stuff if they wanted to. Um, this is perfectly fine. Sweet romance. Uh, I, I don't know that there's anything particularly spectacular about this other than the fact that it goes for the whole um, disabled romance angle he's in a wheelchair and uh you know she has to love him in spite of it and what's their life going to be like and all that kind of love story stuff never having to say you're sorry uh by the way arthur hiller rest in peace i know you know his wife died just like six months before well that's uh, that, it always that, happens that does it, doesn't yeah. it yeah always and, happens. i'm sure they were married for 40 years 68 68 yeah and that's it yeah that's it my grandparents were the same thing no no some very good friends of ours i spoke at uh at one of their funerals he uh, he made it to 100, passed away. His wife was 96, and she, and she passed about six weeks later. And they'd been married for over 70 years, That's like wild. 72, 73 years. It was amazing. Always blows me away. It's not like that now. Nowadays, no. everyone goes in and out of relationships like it's like it's night. Nice. They they're swiping left for their wives. That's <laughs> crazy. Nobody cares anymore. Anyway, so yeah, so me before you. I mean, it, uh, it doesn't do it. What was the thing with uh, Campbell Scott and uh, Julia Roberts? What was that thing called? He's got cancer, and he. Oh yeah, it was. Um, hang on, yeah. I'm gonna look this up. I'm gonna pretend. It's like a little know. bit. It's a. Uh, it's not quite as maudlin as that, but it's hang perfectly on. fine. That movie Good. sucked, by the way. It yeah. was called uh, Dying Young. Thank you, Amelia Clark. Absolutely wonderful. I will say that about it. She's she's just delightful. Um, and then on uh, DVD, The Nymphettes, which is from uh, whoa, director. Whoa, whoa, the nymph, the nymphomaniacs, the nymphettes. It's from Gary Gardner. Diagnosed with nymphomania. That's it. Uh, Gary Gardner wrote and directed this, and it's a, it's a good small piece. It reminds me a little bit of Two Girls and a Guy, the thing with Robert Downey Jr., right, if you remember that. Um, anyway, this is about uh, two women and one guy who meet, and they all, and it's a three-person, it's a three-hander or a six-hander, I guess, my, as, it, as, it, as they might call it. Uh, you just stick them in an apartment and let them play head games with each other. And uh, it's, it, it's it, for a movie that is clearly contrived, to be done in a single location with three actors, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't reveal the seams uh, as as kind of blatantly as a lot of these films do. Uh, this did very well at the uh, South by Southwest Film Festival in 2015, and it is uh, it's a good solid indie worth checking out. And I think Gary Gardner's got many other good films in him. Yeah, you said you wanted water when the show started. Isn't oh yeah. Water? Oh. Even, you, I gave it to you an hour ago. Wow, I didn't even realize that was my water. Thank you. You are a jerk. Thank you. Anyway, a uh, very different sort of baseball film I'm going to recommend. It's called uh, The Phenom. And The uh, Phenom, uh, maybe like 5% of this movie actually takes place on the baseball diamond. 
That's because uh, the movie is about this uh, up-and-coming pitcher. He's going to be a phenomenon, greatest guy ever. Winds up having a breakdown right there on the mound. Guy has a breakdown, and he goes to see Dreadful. a uh, he goes to see a, a sports therapist played by Paul Giamatti. Of course, he does. And in seeing the sports therapist, he starts to get into stories about his abusive father, played by Ethan Hawke. Mm-hmm. And so, really, the movie is about a father coming, to, uh, a son coming to terms with his childhood and the abuse he took uh, at the hands of his father. So the fact is that baseball kind of has very little to do with it, and it doesn't even it doesn't end on like the he strikes out the guy at the very end to the while the crowd goes wild. It's not that kind of a movie. Um, it's being marketed as a baseball movie because um, there's a big, beautiful baseball shot at the uh, at the on, on the cover art. Um, but really, you know what? It's cerebral, it's talky, but it's got a lot of insight and smarts. And um, I was very surprised. I, I thought this would be another one of those uh, sports movies, you know, where he's going to pitch a perfect game. It's going to be great, and the last strike will make everybody freak out and the musical swell. Not that movie. So um, it's a it's a really interesting little indie. Um, Ethan Hawke is great. Paul Giamatti, always great. And the kid, Johnny Simmons, he's quite good. So I uh, recommend The Phenom. It's a different kind of baseball movie. It's, uh, it's a good one. Definitely worth checking out. Very nice. Uh, Sunset Song. Sweet. Very sweet. Almost too sweet in some ways. This is from Mag- uh, Magnolia. Not on Blu-ray, sadly enough. Should be. Uh, Terrence Davies is a filmmaker who's always kind of divided people in some very strange ways. I like him. I do, too. I mean, Terrence Davies' movies are all sort of autobiographical. I mean, he's basically made forged a career out of making movies that are sort of like showing us slideshows of his childhood and his young adulthood. I mean, that's really what he is. He's He's a nostalgic autobiographical filmmaker. And, uh, but you know what? This is, uh, I, 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 here's the thing. This is all. This is very much for the Downton Abbey crowd. Uh, it takes place uh, on the eve of World War One. Basically, that same Edwardian background, that same Edwardian period as uh, as uh, Downton Abbey, and uh, it is it deals with how uh, a certain young woman in the English countryside uh, deals with the all of the the turbulent social and economic and political. Uh, tides that are sort of sweeping the land at that time. If, again, if you've seen Downton Abbey, you know all what's going on. But uh, Terrence Davies is much more of a poet than a storyteller, and so he wraps it up in his usual um, sort of the sweep of history is sort of like the rhythm, the poetic meter of the story. And it's uh, quite beautifully done. Um, Agnes Dane is the uh, lead actress here. You also get an amazing performance by Peter Mullen, who just can do no wrong. I love him. He's, he's the just, best. Isn't he the best? Yep. He's just everything he As shows As a director, up. too. Oh, absolutely. The Magdalene Sisters. He's just he's a tremendous filmmaker. He's a firebrand. You know, He's really just an angry... Very intense. Really intense guy. Politically very intense. Yep. Very outspoken. But he makes great movies. He's a great actor. A tyrannosaur. He just scares the daylights out of you. If you've seen the Jane Campbell thing the uh the, the, no the to top of the uh, top of the peak top the of the hill, pops the, the top of the top well, of the peak no the crimson peak that's it star wars there you go <laughs> thank you uh he's great in that. you know what you know what else he is if you've ever seen lily's driftwood bay because i have a toddler i know this there's an irish animated show called lily's driftwood bay about this little girl and uh, she she puts like the stuff she finds on the beach, little shells and things. She puts it together, and then she imagines these little lands, and she goes off. She sails off to these little fantastic lands. And the animation is all done like with 
pieces of string and pieces of shell and rocks and say it's it's not drawn per se it's like they take actual objects and then they photograph them and then they turn them it makes no sense what so, i'm saying is so it? the show's been out of garbage kind of so anyway there's a dog whose features are all formed with like rocks like little sea rocks but the dog's name is salty and uh, the voice of salty is peter mullen this guy really? who scares the daylights out of me every time he shows up in a movie. I think he's going to jump out of the screen and just bludgeon me with a, with a, with a stone hammer or something. And he's, he's the voice of Salty. And so, it's a sweet animated show. So what did, what did Peter Mullen say to his agent when his agent approached him with his project? <laughs> you want me to do what? <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait, um, the director of Clown um, actually doesn't really want you seeing Clown. It's, he's a little nervous about you seeing Clown, yeah. Because Clown is about is a horror film about a father who uh, puts on a clown outfit uh, to perform on his son's birthday, oh, only to find out that he cannot remove the clown outfit. Oh, that's fabulous! And it's uh, it has terrible consequences. And it was um, co-written and directed by um, John Watts. And John Watts is like, I don't know if I want you to see this movie because my next movie is Spider-Man Homecoming. <laughs> and so I don't know if I want Man. you to see this horrific, very R-rated, mm-hmm. uh, disturbing, why gory he, clown film. Why was he hired to do Spider-Man I Homecoming? don't know. What did they – you know, here's the thing. I have, I have to be honest. I mean, is it with Somehow – no, no, no. Here's the thing. Somehow – I, I, I don't know if it, if, if it was Kevin Feige, whatever his name is. Yeah. I, he was the one who, took, who found the Russo brothers and said, you know what? You've done a couple episodes of a sitcom. Here's $175 million. <laughs> and they knock out of the park. I know. Russo brothers are great. They, I know. they knocked that out of the park. All their movies, the, all it's, the events. So if, if, if Kevin is I saying guess. that John Watts is the man, then I guess John Watts is the man. Yeah, all right. Sure. This is an Eli Roth thing, by the way. He produced this. I don't know. Yes, what else that's he had another to do. reason why John Watts does not want you seeing Clown. <laughs> uh, Ratchet and Clank, one of those uh, quickly cranked out CGI animated films that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, especially, this is an animated film, and the tagline, ready to kick some asteroid? Really? Really? You went with that? That's what you went with? Blu-ray, DVD, and ultraviolet on this uh, kind of pointless thing from uh, Universal. Uh, they even resurrected the the Gramercy brand for this. Remember Gramercy for a moment, sure. for a minute and a half. We had good movies coming out of Gramercy as an indie label. I don't know what Gramercy does for them, uh, resurrecting it for for this thing. But uh, anyway, I guess this is a video game, or so I've been told. Uh, so Ratchet and Clank is a video game uh, about a couple of uh, you know spacey type things and one's some kind of an animal and uh, I don't know whatever they it's uh, there's a whole kind of weird tweaked anime type uh, narrative world here that makes absolutely no sense the animation's not very good uh, the only thing that's kind of entertaining is that there are some decent voice characterizations which include Stallone and John Goodman and Paul Giamatti and that's fun um, but otherwise I you know it's doesn't, doesn't it just doesn't work you know what does work, Wade, is uh, The Night Manager. This is uh, with uh, Hugh Laurie and uh, Taylor Swift's boyfriend, Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. It's a good show. It's based on the uh, John le Carré novel, and um, it is, um, it's got tight storytelling, and it's exciting. It's got a lot of punch to it. It's uh, got a lot of suspense. You kind of get into the inner life of these characters, this British um, uh, ex-soldier. And uh, I was really taken by it. I think it's really good. 
you know what? I, I don't think that Tom Hiddleston will, will wind up being uh, 007 thanks to this um, this little series. But uh, it's good. It's good Cloak & Dagger stuff. Really liked it a lot. And uh, it's a six-part miniseries. You get them all on Blu-ray. This is Uncensored, which doesn't give you a whole lot more. But mm. still, there it is. It's Uncensored. And it's good. This really had a moment. Uh, people really like this thing. And it's, it's very good. Very good. Very tense. Very fun. Cat and mouse stuff. Liked it. Well, as long as we're on the uh, Hiddleston train, let's hit you with another one. High Rise, which did not make it into theaters. Incredibly, I don't know why. Uh, High well, Rise. Supposedly it sucked. Well, I did not see it. I uh, heard it was not good. It, no. It, well, look. First of all, here's the thing. You've got Tom Hiddleston. It's a film by Ben Wheatley. It did well in England. Why would you not just put this thing into a few screens? It's Magnolia. Come on. You, you could afford to put it into some of your, your, your landmark screens that you own because Mark Cuban owns Magnolia and Landmark. Why not? It doesn't cost you anything. Now, what happened to the Paramount Decree? Well, they can't do that. Yeah. A studio cannot own theaters. That you realize it expired. The consent decree expired back in the 80s. That's how Warner and Paramount were able to buy a big chunk of man theaters. Man theaters. Yes, when I worked there. So, uh, yes. In any case, so High Rise, here's the thing. And I don't know, again, I, it's not as bad as people said. It's, I mean, it's not accessible, uh, which has more to do with the, the source material. But uh, regardless, uh, essentially, the, um, the, the film is based on a novel by J.G. Ballard. And if you know anything about J.G. Ballard, you understand that J.G. Ballard has two gears. J.G. Ballard, very, very famous uh, kind of horror sci-fi novelist. And uh, he is also the man who wrote the wonderful memoir um, that was adapted into Spielberg's fantastic World War II memoir, uh, Empire of the Sun. Now, Empire of the Sun is about J.G. Ballard's growing up, World War II, China, the whole thing. It's very much his memoir of his childhood, and Spielberg made a wonderful movie of it. David Lean wanted to at one point. Spielberg wound up making the film. That's a very heartwarming, sweet film. The other J.G. Ballard is the guy who wrote Crash. No, not the one that won the Academy Award, but the one that Cronenberg made into a movie about people who crash cars and mutilate themselves because they get off on it, which a friend of mine has described as vomit uh, with, you know, Holly Hunter and that, that film. James Spader. James Spader. Uh, which, you know, I, I think Crash is a really cool film, but I realize that it is so deranged that it really upsets a lot of people. And High Rise has some of the same tone to it. Uh, Tom Hiddleston is a guy who, uh, he's a doctor, moves into this, uh, this you know, very, very cool skyscraper where there are a lot of other people, including Jeremy Irons and Sienna Miller and Luke Evans. And uh, it's not exactly the place that, you know... It's not quite what it seems at first, and eventually it sort of becomes a microcosm of every social problem that you could possibly invent that exists in the UK. In any case, uh, Ben Wheatley is the perfect guy to direct a J.G. Ballard adaptation. Ben Wheatley has the same tweaked view of life. Uh, Have you ever seen any Ben Wheatley movies? Uh, let's see what he's done. Check out, check out Ben Wheatley. First of all, uh, the last one that I really thoroughly loved was a very low-budget black-and-white film called A Field in England, which takes place during the War of the Roses, and it gets extremely weird. It's about a bunch of people who are fleeing the battle from different sides. They, they meet in the field. I have um, seen nothing this guy has ever done. Really. He makes very tweaked movies. But A Field in England is terrific. The one right before A Field in England, uh, the title of Escaping Me, The Vacationing People. Look, uh, Field in England. Look at him. Uh, the Wrong Door, Down Terrace, Ideal, no, Inside Bergen Way, Kill List, Sightseers. Sightseers. 
It's about a couple who uh, jump in their Winnebago and they go on vacation and they start killing people. That's Sweet. what I'm talking about. So that's why he's the right person for uh, a J.G. Ballard novel. Anyway, um, the, uh, this is a very nasty, nasty movie. It's got a wicked kind of sense of humor to it. Not very accessible. That's probably why they didn't release it, but they should have because it has Tom Hiddleston in it and he's going to be the next James Bond, says I. I don't know, You don't man. know? Who, who else? Clive Owen's too old. Yes. Idris Elba. Idris Elba's the same age as, uh, as Daniel Craig. I, I was a sweet thought. I w- it would have been awesome like five, ten years ago, but Idris Elba's not getting any younger. I mean, you know, you, you want somebody who's going to be able to do like five or six of those things. I think Hiddleston's too, he's a little too effete. I mean, I guess, I guess because here's the thing. Daniel Craig comes across as such a bruiser that maybe they want to go in the opposite direction with someone who's a little Rod, bit like... Roger uh, Moore wasn't effete? <laughs> really? He's Roger Moore. He was the worst. And we, we grew up on that Bond, too. That was the Bond I grew up on. And like, I know. Like, like Sean Connery, he's not Bond. Roger Moore is Bond. Yeah. Now, of course, I know better. Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway. And then uh, one last new movie this week, a quick little mention of a, a low-budget film that's about making movies. That's always worth making mention of. Uh, Shooting the Prodigal. Uh, super low-budget film, but uh, you know it, it's, it's amusing in some strange ways. It's about a um, a young Jewish film student who uh, tr- gets together with this Baptist preacher in the South to do a movie based on the parable of the prodigal son. It is uh, it's a, it's a, it's a really you know this is one of those low budget movies where you know it's not good but you just you salute the the effort because darn it all they've just put everything into this movie and you just got to applaud them give them a may for effort. So uh, that's from uh, Virgil. It is called Shooting the Prodigal. It's worth a worth a rental at the very least, I think. You know it's worth a rental, Wade. Hmm. Wiener. <laughs> this is such a disturbing documentary. This is the gris is great. It's so disturbing. Well, if if you don't know who uh, who um, Carlos Wiener, uh, Carlos Danger is. <laughs> Let me tell you who Carlos is. I screwed up the joke. Carlos Danger. The best. It's like, why would you? Carlos why Danger. Would you, of all the names, of all the names that you could come up with, what, Carlos Danger? <laughs> it's so just dorky. It's just lame. It's, it, it's so, I think this makes me look cool, but really it makes me look oh. like just the ultimate douche. Oh, anyway, uh, Anthony Weiner uh, was a uh, New York politician, and he was running for mayor, and he winds up getting— uh, He used to be in the House. He was, yes. And he winds, up, uh, he winds up getting involved in this sex scandal that destroys his candidacy and just sends him just into just obscurity until 2013 when he decides audaciously to try a comeback bid to be mayor— and then he gets brought down again by a sex scandal. While they're making the film. While they're making the They're film. making... No, this is the incredible thing. First of all, he, he reveals himself to these filmmakers. And even at a certain point in the film, they say... You know, and, they, and, fi- and documentarians don't usually, in films of this sort, insert themselves into the movie. They let the camera kind of do... Like the, like the Maisleys would. You let the camera sort of be there for you. And you, you step back. But there's a certain point in this film where they just can't they can't control themselves anymore and they actually ask him why are you letting us film this and 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 he has no answer because it's just raw narcissism it's like i would it's the it's the reality show thing it's it's almost like i would rather the world see my life coming apart at the seams than live a normal life and have no one know that i exist 
at least if my life is a train wreck and everyone is watching it be a train wreck, somehow that makes me somebody. It's the weirdest. He has no answer for that. And they are incredulous. They just, they're watching this, this happen. They're making a movie about a guy who's supposed to be making a comeback, and it happens again while the cameras are running. And at no point does he say, yeah, time out. I think I'm gonna, I, I, I don't want to make this movie anymore. He just lets it go. And you just think, what is wrong with you? I mean, I'm glad I'm watching this because this is the only film of this kind that will ever exist. But what is wrong with you? It's the best. It's this thing is just riveting. I found this thing just absolutely. And also, it's really. And he's, and he's married to uh, to, you to know, a, 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 a confidant of uh, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, Huma Abedin, who has you know been in the in the thick of every, not like that poor woman. As if it's not enough that she gets caught up in her husband's stuff. Now she's caught up in her own stuff. You just wonder how does the, how do these people even how does this marriage survive? <laughs> I, it must it, it must either be rock solid or there's something else going on. Or I don't know. May, maybe she has. Uh, look, if, if, if Hillary Clinton can survive Bill Clinton scandals, then maybe she has designs on an office you, you and she can want, survive Anthony scandals. You watch this and you just want nothing to do with politics. <laughs> it's so depressing. And this thing is – it's. I mean there is – it's about it's about a marriage in disarray. It's about living your life on social media. It's about having your life torn apart on social media. It's yeah, about it's running – it's, it's about run, It's about uh, in, inside baseball in terms of so politics. Unreal. It's about a, just this fascinating scandal. It's about narcissism. It's just about everything. And Wiener is just one of the best documentaries of the year. And uh, you just got to see it. Yeah. The thing is, whole, you you will not believe what you are seeing. That this this guy is so out of his mind. It's absolutely true. A uh, cute little documentary here that uh, did very nicely at Sundance called a uh, called Dark Horse, which uh, is about these people in Wales who uh, basically decide to try to breed a racehorse, and uh, it's it's really kind of an amazing it's an amazing shaggy dog documentary story. It's really it's a shaggy horse. It's a shaggy horse is what it is. Um, anyway, it's really, really a sweet story. It's just, it's a beautiful. T- it's it, re- independent of the whole idea of horse racing. It's just a beautiful story about uh, human and animal relationships. And no jokes, please. Uh, but it really is. It's very, very sweet. And uh, if you love horses and if you love stories of, you know, forget about like fictional horse movies. This is really just wonderful. And the fact that it takes place in Wales just somehow makes it all so classic and so, you know, national velvet. It's really good. It's called Dark Horse. <sighs> okay, Wade. It's been 17 years since JFK Jr. died in a plane crash. And he would have run for president, they say. And he would have run for president, they say, and might have even won. Well, uh, but sad. instead, he is uh, he died in a plane crash. Very, very sad. That family is, uh, in some sense, uh, they've cursed. Had, they've had such, such their share of tragedy. It's unbelievable. Um, so here we have uh, I Am JFK Jr., which is a uh, tribute to uh, JFK Jr., Robert De Niro's in it. We'll talk about De Niro in a second uh, with one of the better releases of the uh, of the week. Maybe not one of the better releases, but one of the better films yes. that are, is coming Which out this week. Which we would have talked about earlier, but it's sitting in your Blu-ray player right now, and we were watching it earlier. Damn right. Yep. Uh, De Niro, Mike Tyson, Christian Amanpour, Chris Cuomo, um, Oprah's in this. So it's really all about JFK. Woody had run for president, all about his life, opening up to his human side. And Michael Reagan's in this, too. And uh, it's good stuff if you are a if you're a Kennedyophile. Um, Ann Coulter's in this, and you know that at Ann Coulter, you know that she's going to bring the honesty. You know that Ann Coulter is going to bring 
a, uh, the, 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 the human warmth. I don't have a joke for that. <laughs> I just don't. I have no comeback. You know, for there's, that. there's a there's a warmth to her. Yeah, there is a humanity yeah. Yeah. that you know comes across like in a flamethrower. Like, that kind like, of warmth. And you know what she says will 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 will, will be learned, yeah, intellectual. It'll be it'll be well thought out. Don't you think that? Okay, you're you're you're. If you if we if this show were actually any more popular, we'd be subject to a tweet storm tomorrow. <laughs> That's what would. Happen. I mean, here's the thing. Don't you think that William F. Buckley is like some like his William F. Buckley was like an intellect. He was a writer. He was an intellect. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that he'd be, he'd be, he would just be rolling over in his grave when he sees like Ann Coulter and Sean Hannity? Yeah, probably. I mean, come on. Yeah, probably. Those guys don't hold a candle to William F. Buckley. No, Buckley was, Buckley was the man. He was the, th- he was the thinker. He was the thinker. Ugh, it's annoying. And then we've got foodies. Speaking of something that dovetails with movies and food uh, and, and the ice cream that Mark is going to make for me, uh, foodies is a documentary about foodies. And uh, I can't say that it's really amazing. Uh, it just sort of, you know, it it's, goes around the world. It's a little globetrotting movie that uh, takes you inside the world of people that just love great food. The only interesting thing about this is that the uh, the company that uh, basically or arranged the financing and the sales of this film, uh, Fortissimo Films, is going bankrupt. And uh, that's a whole interesting separate story, but it, it speaks to just how incredibly difficult it is for, for companies, established companies, that even have a successful track record to continue to operate in the uh, kind of between the seams where the, these little independent companies used to operate, where they just make movies and sell them at film festivals and make movies and sell them at film festivals. And they'd sell them to enough territories around the world that they'd continue to make money. And uh, that kind of marginal business is getting harder and harder and harder. So you wonder uh, if movies like Foodies will continue to be made. Again, not a great film, but certainly has an audience. If you love food and you love traveling, it's, it's a movie for you. But increasingly, stuff like this is not going to be on DVD. It's going to wind up on public television. It's going to wind up somewhere uh, buried on Netflix. So you may have to just wa- dig and dig and search for it. So interesting world, interesting times we're living in. And then our last documentary this week, also from Kina Lorber, State of Control. Yet, uh, yet another absolutely fascinating uh, documentary, kind of an, one of those undercover documentaries. Uh, we've had a number of them that go into North Korea. This one is, goes undercover in Tibet. And, uh, you know, China is very, very, very... Uh, it's intensely controlled, the access to Tibet. You, can't, you can go to China. You can fly into Shanghai. You can go to Beijing. You can go to any of the major... Uh, metropolitan areas in China without much fanfare, but uh, Tibet is really still a very, very sensitive, uh, sensitive subject matter, as one might imagine. So, in any case, a couple of American filmmakers orchestrated a uh, an undercover filmmaking journey to Tibet here, and uh, it is it is it is like the stuff of spy movies. What uh, what happens? It is really, really amazing. It is a, an incredible film. And I'm surprised this thing hasn't gotten a better play. It is really worth checking out. State of Control. Really, really uh, incredibly timely. And uh, all right, Mark, uh, it is time for us to discuss the wonders of Martin Brest. Well, we're, bre- we're, bre- uh, we're breast men. That's what I just want to well, say. Well, one film. Yes. We, yes. I, I'm not sure I'm going to sit here and uh, extol the virtues of uh, Meet Joe Black. Oh, come on. Meet Joe Black's a great movie. Yeah, it's okay. Exactly. Although he did direct Beverly Hills Cop. 
So good. But right yeah, after. Instead he, of a woman. Instead of a woman. Uh, God. So, so speaking of, uh, of actors who, who finally won their Oscar for a film they didn't deserve it oh for. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, uh, Midnight Run, which he did after Beverly Hills Cop, is one of my favorite comedies of all time. I love this film so much. I'm so glad it's out on Blu-ray. Is this Blu-ray any good? It's okay. Um, we are big fans of Shout Select, big fans of Shout Factory, Scream Factory, the whole nine yards. Um, the transfer here is okay. Some yeah. of the um, uh, nighttime exteriors are kind of grainy. There's a bunch of... Sound um, is tinny. Yeah. There's a bunch of extras... Um, the interview with um, Yafed Koto is uh, like a fo- like a, it's like a recorded phone conversation, literally, just just an audio conversation, just set to stills. Yeah. So that's not great. And then the interview with De Niro, who thank you for doing something. Thank you for acknowledging mm-hmm. the sure. importance of the film and that it is a terrific film. Uh, the interview with De Niro. Is just terrible. I mean, he's not a good. He's yeah. not a good interview anyway. No. But basically, what they did was they took a lousy interview with De Niro, a bunch of nothing bites that he always gives, and they just padded it out mm-hmm. with scenes from the film, voiceover from some guy who sounds like he's doing an infomercial, and it's just not a very. It's a disappointing supplement. Yeah. I was hoping for more, even yeah. though we all know that you get what you get from De Niro. Um, so the supplements are not that great, and the transfer is not that great. However, I would highly recommend buying this because I love this movie. I agree. <laughs> I agree completely. Minette runs great. Love it's it. It's so much fun. Yep, agreed. You lied to me first. You lied to me first. These things go down. These things go down. <laughs> so great. All right, let's uh, knock out a little bit of television, and then we'll uh, call it quits on the show. Uh, real, real fast. A couple of classic TV bits here. Um, he, uh, hee haw! The collector's edition. Uh, Fourteen DVDs. We've talked about little tidbits of hee haw. This is all the hee haw you will ever be able to handle. Uh, this is hee haw laughs. L a f f s. Uh, the Hee Haw Collection Cornfield Classics and then just the plain original 7 DVD set The Hee Haw Collection uh, you know this thing was just laugh in for, for Hicks uh, which was the, the whole point I'm sure that was the pitch and uh, it came out of, out of Tennessee and it just you know the, this show was incredibly popular for decades like from 1969 to about 1992 uh, really amazing run. Just a, an amazing run this show had. And stupid humor, but funny in its own weird, sweet, goofy, charming way. Uh, lots of great music performances. And that's from Time Life. And then also from Time Life, we had the complete Carol Burnett uh, show collection a couple of years ago. And the lost episodes are now, have been kind of trickling out as well. That is now, now gets its own great box set, 45 original episodes. Uh, these are the original ones that have not been seen for, for 40 years and uh, lots of great uh, guest performances on here. So they get their own fantastic box set as well, which is much more solid than the one that was given the original complete series. Uh, so uh, this is worth checking out as well, especially to see, you know, Carol Burnett and Lucille Ball. That's just golden. Uh, Jim Neighbors. I mean, it's just endless how much fun there is on this. Phyllis Diller, uh, Burt Reynolds. Uh, it, it just it, it, uh, come on. This is just a classic of its time. So uh, the original great sketch comedy show where people just could not control themselves. Uh, that is the Carol Burnett Show: The Lost Episodes. NCIS Los Angeles, which is uh, another NCIS show. That's where they said, you know what, we need to do another NCIS show, and it needs to cost less money. So let's shoot it in L.A., where everybody already lives. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what they did. Yep. And it co-stars uh, uh, LL Cool J and uh, the guy who played Robin. <laughs> and there you go. No yeah. one cares. Um, Criminal Minds has been on for 11 years. Now, Criminal Minds recently made the news, Wade. Why did yes, Criminal Minds make did. the news? Because a certain member of the cast kicked a writer and, got and ruined his career. And got fired. It's Thomas all. Gibson. What was he thinking? Kicked a writer, got Seriously. fired, and then Shamar Moore tweeted or Facebooked or Snapchatted, uh, you know, it's, a, it's about time, or he finally got his kind of a thing. So, um, yeah. Now, Joe Montaigne's on this, so so even though I have not watched season 11, nor do I have any reason to watch season 11, we're just telling you it is here. Um, it does have Joe Montaigne, so at least Criminal Minds will always have... One percent respect in my mind, because Jim Montaigne is awesome. Sweet, you know I don't know what it is about Dick Wolf. Uh, that, that guy just he, he he just doesn't go away, and he just franchises everything. Uh, after inflicting nine hundred and seventy thousand episodes of Law and Order and different and ten different Law and Order shows, he's now milking this Chicago thing endlessly. Uh, we now have season four of Chicago Fire. Which is an okay show. It's the it's the Dick Wolf thing. There's not a, not a lot there that really kind of uh, blows you away. I mean, it's a, it's solid. It's good. It's it's well written. It's just not remarkable in any way. It's just you know it is what it is. It's people in Chicago and they fight fires and they got drama and lives and, and all that. Uh, but now he's also expanded to Chicago Med. We get season one of Chicago Med, which which also has Chicago Fire and Chicago PD crossover episodes. So he's got the whole Chicago thing locked up. Uh, he, but here's the thing about Chicago Med. You know why this is worth watching? Two words: Oliver Platt. Seriously, no, Oliver Platt is becoming just this, 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 he's becoming like this, this enormous mountain of he's like John Goodman esque. It is, you know, he's what? this enormous he's, mountain of a man. But he's great. He's just always sure. good in everything he does. Yes, he, he gets is. better and better and better. Yes, he's just he so incredibly good. Tis true. So, uh, yep. So there it is. Uh, Chicago Med season one. Um, yeah, it's a little ER-esque, and uh, yeah, it's a little bit, uh, you know, hokey how it crosses over with all these other Dick Wolf shows, but you know what? Um, it's got a good cast, and I, Oliver Platt is just golden. I mean, you put an actor like that on a TV show, and you start to understand why he is the guy that he is. And um, then we also got Grey's Anatomy, complete 12th season. Uh, this thing should have died three or four years ago. It really should have. I watched this show religiously for about three or four seasons, and then it just it just started to run aground. Uh, I'm kind of amazed that this thing still, after 12 seasons, is kicking. But uh, you you can tell they're really really just struggling to figure out how to how to you know maintain the drama and maintain the interest. It just does not do what ER did. ER really did this right. So Grey's Anatomy, originally a good show, but uh, uh, you know what? Twelve seasons is well, well past its prime. And uh, Shameless, the complete sixth season, is uh, again. I this is one. Of, this is kind of a quintessential Showtime show. I'm surprised that this thing has lasted this long, to be honest. Uh, but it's got another season coming. This is on Blu-ray with Ultraviolet. And uh, it doesn't come with many extras, but the, the 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 only reason I think this really keeps on kicking is just because it's got uh, a great cast. Uh, William H Macy mainly. Um, I love a lot of the other people in the cast, but Emmy Rossum has done better work, and uh, it just uh, it's just it feels like it just feels a little forced. It feels like a little too much crazy and a little too much contrivance for one show, and somehow it keeps going six seasons. So. 
Uh, under the radar, I guess. Uh, Wade, I was a big fan of um, Blunt Talk, which is a star show starring Patrick Stewart as a uh, as a newsman whose life is pretty much a hellscape of you have uh, four letter words and bad attitudes and all that sort of stuff. And I got to say, this show sucks. <laughs> it's just terrible. Uh, you know what? It's one of those shows that says, oh, I'm swearing. We're edgy. Yeah. And I just was really turned off by it. I was very surprised. I love Patrick Stewart. Um, not only for Star Trek, but just because he's one yeah. of our better actors. I yeah. think he's great. Um, it's too bad that his movie career never really took off. No. You know, he played the bad guy in Conspiracy Theory with uh, Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts. We yeah. thought maybe that would be like a little entree to yeah. A-list a- a- stuff. Didn't happen. Nope. And uh, I just find this scene very effective. I mean, yes, it's profane and, and, and nasty and crass. and Because, you know, his name is, his last name is Bloodway. You know what that means? Yeah. He's blunt. Yeah. Woo. I, I was very disappointed. But you know what, uh, 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 Patrick Stewart, if you, if you want to see Patrick Stewart... Dr. In, Xavier is sort of as far as his film career ever really got. And uh, But even that is like, it's not about well, no, he's, he's, it's, it's about yeah, the character, it's yeah. about being a comic book guy. It's yeah. just, I, I, you know, there's some funny stuff in it, but I just think, I, 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 wish it had, I wish it had more to say about TV journalism. I wish it wasn't so proud of the fact that it's profane. I just think it's just painfully not funny. All right, that's it. We are done. Send us uh, all your good stuff at Gods at Digigods. No. Send us your good stuff, Gods at Digigods.com. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.